The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to pick up in the book of Exodus where we left off last week. If you guys have your Bible, would you please turn to Exodus chapter 20? We're going to be uh, looking at maybe some of the more uh, famous verses uh, in the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. And so before we start looking at the Ten Commandments, we're going to pray because we need God's help. Father in heaven, we ask that as we turn to your word and we look at this marvelous chapter in the book of Exodus, ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Would you bless us that we would hear what you want us to hear? Would you help us, Lord, to be changed on the spot as we look at these verses together, and we ask you would help us to see Jesus and to treasure him more. It's in his name we pray, amen. So there are some events in our lives that take on a deeper significance the, uh, the older we get, right? Some events that happen, and we know that they're important, um, kind of know they're important at the time, and then uh, somehow the the depth of how important they are increases uh, as we get older. For, for Michelle and I, uh, obviously our wedding was incredibly important, but one of the things that we had at our wedding is in our recession, uh, so that's a song that plays when you're like, bah, 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 <laughs> like walking out, you just got married. Uh, the, the, the song that we had playing uh, when we were walking out was A Mighty Fortress uh, by uh, Martin Luther. And um, on the, you know, huge, you know, Imagine like this like big Baptist building with big organ, you know, you know, dun, 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 dun. So that was walking, that was as we left. And part of the reason we picked that song is it captured uh, truths for us uh, that were incredibly important to us and in our young years getting married. But one of the, uh, the verses that has taken on a new meaning for me as we've gotten older is the last verse of that song says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And when we got married, there, I had no inclination that we would be leaving our family and friends behind to come and plant a church. <laughs> but that is what we committed to. We love God's word, and we were committed to the gospel. And so these verses, let goods and kindred grow, go, they took on a deeper significance later on as we look back at them. And the Ten Commandments, and this might be a bit of an odd transition, but the Ten Commandments can kind of feel the same way, right? They're like, they're in the Bible, they're important. People kind of argue whether they should be on state buildings or whatever. They kind of have like this like historic significance, but we're never quite sure like, like what's the, like how important are they, right? Like uh, we're Christians and so we believe the Bible um, or maybe exploring Jesus and you're kind of thinking about the Bible and you're like, well, like, Ten Commandments, okay, like they're important, but like how important are they? What I want us to do, what we're looking at them tonight, I think what we're going to begin to see is how, how revolutionary and how uh, profound the Ten Commandments are for us and how relevant they are for us today. Um, right, they, right, we can, as we're beginning to look at them and starting to look at like, okay, here's the Ten Commandments, how do we relate to these? Um, one of the reactions we could have is maybe uh, look at them and are like, wow, these are like the Old Testament, like it's really b- barbaric, right? <laughs> like all these like incredible things that happen, these really strange rules, and the Ten Commandments are kind of like the index for all these really strange rules. Or if you're a Christian, you look at them and you're like, well, like that's Old Testament and now we're in Christ and so like they don't relate to us at all. So we're going to be kind of looking at some of that stuff and how we relate to that. Because some of this is the Ten Commandments are, in many ways, they are incredibly unique and they are incredibly, um, they are almost kind of like sectioned off within the Old Testament as being like their own distinct section within the book of Exodus. But let's just review. Up to this point, uh, God is, uh, the story of Exodus up to this point has been God's people, they are oppressed and enslaved under darkness and they are held captive by Pharaoh. God invades Egypt. He says, I'm going to make my people my own. I'm going to lead them out, and I'm going to free them from sin and darkness. And the way he does that is he goes in, and he says, Pharaoh's not going to have any hand in this. I'm going to do this completely on my own, and my own grace is going to save my people. They're going to be free because I say they're free. 
So he has the plagues where he basically demolishes the Egyptian gods, leads them out. Again, you have this whole thing that we looked at a few weeks ago with the crossing of the Red Sea, right? This other miracle, and they are led out, and they are, they are now like called God's distinct people, right? And as we've been looking at this, what has God commanded them to do the entire time? He's commanded them to worship him. He's commanded them uh, to have a feast with him, right, with the Passover meal. And now, as they are defined by this grace of what God's called them to, and led to the mountain where he has provided for them, and now they come, and now we start getting into the, the, the reality of what does it look like to be God's people? Like, what does it look like to obey God? When I think what's been fascinating to see thus far in the book of Exodus is, like, sometimes we can look at the Bible and think, oh, it's all these rules. Well, the story up to this point in the book of Exodus, before we get to the rules, has all been... God's amazing grace, right? His kindness to bring his people near. So before we get to talking about what does it mean, what are the rules, what does it mean to act like God's people, the context of what we've been looking at, right? The, uh, the character, the tone of this has all been God's gracious smile to them, right? He's been looking at them with this big smile, like, I am so glad to save you, right? And he comes down and does it um, like to the nth degree, right? So we've been seeing how that all relates to them being seen that in Christ. Right? This is the book of Exodus, and Christ has been fulfilling this along the way more perfectly. More perfect Passover lamb, right? You have a lamb who dies to save them from the judgment. You have Jesus who lays down his life to save us from God's judgment, and now fills us with his spirit. But, so here we are, chapter 20, looking at the book of Exodus. And so... What I want to do is just make a few observations before we start looking at the, uh, the verses. I want to make a couple observations about the Ten Commandments themselves. Um, it is in this context that God gives the Ten Commandments, this context of saying, my grace is what defines you. And it's my grace that draws you near. So when you look even at, uh, at the beginning of the book, uh, of chapter 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Right, so before we start getting to the Ten Commandments, we start saying they're based on who God says he is. I'm a God who saves. I'm a God who pursues you. I'm a God who brings you near and brought, and brought you out. Before I tell you what it means to be my people, your identity and your life is based on God's grace. Second thing that's important about the, the, the Ten Commandments that's distinct about them is that they're the only part of the Bible that is, writ, that is said to be written by God's finger. Ten Commandments, this is the only part of the Bible where God says, I write this with my own finger. I'm not exactly sure what that means, right? All of these are God's actual words to us, but the Ten Commandments are spoken to be distinctly written by God's finger. Then, that's not, not only are they written by God's finger, but they're written by God's finger in stone, right? So, that is written down anywhere. They're distinctly written in stone. And then the fourth thing that's important is that the Ten Commandments are the only part of the entire Old Testament that is put into the Ark of the Covenant. Which we're, so we're going to get to the end of the book of Exodus. And we're going to talk about what is this whole massive structure of the tent where God meets with his people. And what does it mean for God to be present with his people. At the very heart of the presence of where God comes are the Ten Commandments inside this Ark of the Covenant that were written by God's own fingers. So they are very kind of like distinct and set apart. They're like their own, they are in some ways the nucleus of what it means to know God or to see who he is. And so then going on, so then how do we relate to this as Christians kind of looking back at Ten Commandments, right? Because Ten Commandments are like the old part of the Bible. Now we're in Jesus. How do we relate to them? Well, when, when God promises to save his people, he, makes a, he says, you know, look, this covenant that we're looking at in the book of Exodus is going to not do its job but I'm going to make a new covenant. And so we see in, the, in Jeremiah, um, we'll see, do we have those verses up? We see that Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, right? So that's, that's all the stuff we've been talking about. I will put the law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. So you see that part where it says, I will put my law within, I will write it on their hearts. Doesn't that sound very familiar to what we're talking about with the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments, when we become Christians, what God says is, 
I'm going to come down and write these Ten Commandments. I'm going to write them on your heart so that you know what we're looking at in this, these verses. We know the Redeemer. We know the Lord. We know him specifically. And his grace comes and writes them, not on tablets of stone, to write them on our hearts. Are you guys tracking with what I'm... So this is, this is a part of what it means to be a Christian is to look at the Ten Commandments and say, oh, this is, this is what it means to know God and to obey God and to live with God. So that's what we're looking at tonight, right? We're not just kind of looking at these old dusty rules and thinking, okay, well, these should be on the courthouse. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about. I'm not even going to get into whether they should be on the courthouse or not. <laughs> what we're looking at is saying, who is this God that would tell us who he is and what it means to obey him and know him? And he's promised, look, they aren't just going to be in your Bible in your pew, they're going to be written on your heart so that you know something about God from these verses. Uh, so typically what happens when you look at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are um, kind of like divided into two parts. You have the first four, latter six. First four, see what, here we go. Charles Heston. <laughs> Has anybody seen the Ten Commandments movie? I mean, it's like, it's like old. I, I feel like I have to kind of reference it. It's like an American icon in some ways. But here we have the Ten Commandments, they're not exactly evenly distributed there, and that's actually not, um, I don't think that's Hebrew. So I'm not exactly sure what, what's going on there. But, um, but you have the first four, which relate to God, like our relationship with God, and the last six that relate to our relationship with our neighbor. So when Jesus says, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. It's like a summary of the two ta- tables, you might say the two tables of the law. So we're going to be looking at the first four tonight. And so what we're going to be looking at, um, when we look at the first four, we're going to look at them one by one, but when we look at the first four, we're going to be seeing that the heart redeemed by grace lives in worship of the God of grace. The heart redeemed by grace lives in worship of the God of grace. Because in the first four, we're going to be seeing what it means to love God, to know him. And God tells us very specifically, what is that, what is that characterized by? So, are you guys tracking? Is this cool? We're going, to look at, we're going to start with the first commandment. We're going to look at this together. And what does God graciously command our hearts? What does he say about us if we're going to know him? Right? Because it starts out, I'm the Lord your God, and the God spoke all these. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this relationship of grace does something to our hearts. So the first thing, the first commandment we're going to be looking at we're looking at delighting in God, or delight in God. It's a commandment to delight in God. So verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Pretty simple command, right? No other gods before me, right? There is only one God, and you will have only this God before you. And it actually, like, literally means you shall have no other gods before my face, right? <laughs> God's saying, all these other gods that want to abide for your attention, they're going to be out of my face. You're going to have me face to face. You're going to have God directly in front of you. Now, why is this like negatively stated, right? You should have no other, why doesn't it just say, you're going to have me? Why does it say, have no other gods before me? Well, the reason it's negatively stated or said like in a negative tone is just to say, listen, our hearts apart from God, we just are prone just to, to wander and to walk away. And we kind of need like the buffer zone, right? Uh, you ever, you know, you ever go bowling, you got like the buffers, right? Yeah. Don't throw the ball in the gutter. Have no other gods before me, right? Here's, here's the buffer zone. No other gods. You get one god, and you get me. So the way you get this, this commandment may be like positively stated. It's Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, we said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Or heart, mind, and all your might. Sorry, I have various <laughs> remembrances of it conflicting in my head, but the purpose of this, right? The Lord, you shall love the Lord your God. The Lord shall make you happy. The Lord will be your delight. You shall have no other gods before you because the Lord himself will be sufficient for you. The Lord will satisfy you completely with who he is. That the first commandment is a command to delight in God because it's, he's saying, remember, he has just saved them and called them to himself. And he's saying, all those people, all those false gods that I saved you from, don't worship them. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one that's, you're a slave to them. And now come near to me. Delight in me. I am infinitely satisfying, right? In this story, we've been seeing about how he was providing for them with the manna, 
and then water from the rock. So God is, God is eager to care for them. So he's eager to satisfy them. He will delight your soul because he can do nothing else but be happy. And when you get a happy God, you get a God who makes you happy. Right? God's call is to satisfy and delight the soul. But the question can be, what, is it, what does it mean what does it mean to delight in something? Like, how do we tell like what delights? Because like, when we say like delight or make happy, I'm not exactly sure what that means. Maybe it's like, okay, I mean, I guess the Patriots make me happy, or I don't know, the Red Sox are about to start kicking it off on April third. We're going to have the opening opening day. Where I guess sports make me happy. I don't like. How do you tell like what like makes your soul happy? Here's a question that I think kind of begins to get us into this question. What are you thankful for? Like, if we're asking, if, are we obeying the first commandment or not? Delight, what do we delight in? Maybe the better question to ask, what, what are you thankful for? I think that begins to get us into the heart of this commandment. What are you thankful for? Or maybe more accurately, who are you thankful for? Or thankful to? We see when we when we get into obeying the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Are we delighting in God? Delight produces thanksgiving, right? Have you ever really enjoyed something and not been thankful for it? (laughs) I got this new thing for my birthday, but I'm not going to tell anybody about it. Like we don't, we don't do that, right? Like when we, when we get something new or we get something that we've been wanting or we, we delight in something, we tell other people about it and we're thankful. We're like, I can't believe, I, my wife got this for me or my friend, he thought of me and he picked up this green hat for me from, you know, the Red Sox stadium. And I, I'm like so happy that like, I finally got what, this hat that I've been, you know, wanting or whatever. You know, it's funny, we, I was asking, um, I usually don't use my children for illustrations and, ser- and sermons, but I just thought it was perfect. From this last week, I asked Isaac, Isaac, what, what makes you happy? His response was being mischievous. <laughs> it's like, well, that's pretty accurate, you know? <laughs> but asking this question, what are you thankful for, gets us into this question of are we obeying, are we living in this first commandment to love the Lord your God and to have no other gods before me? See, when Paul was thinking about this question in the New Testament, he points out uh, in Romans 1, he's talking about what does it mean to live apart from God, to live apart from Jesus. And he pulls out this, um, I'll go to the next, next slide over. He pulls out, talking about the, the, what it means to be apart from God. And he says, for although they knew God, right, we're, we're born, we're knowing that God exists. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, apart, apart from God, we, we don't thank him. In Christ, God opens our eyes to what it means to begin to obey this command is to thank God. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for who, what you've done in my life. Thank you for all that you have said about who you are. Right? We, what, what delights our heart overflows in the words of our mouth. When we are thankless to God, it's because we have not begun to honor God only in our hearts. It's, there's something else that's in the, in the way, something else that's in the face of God, between us and God, that makes us not thankful. I was talking about this with a friend recently, um, talking about a few issues I've been working through, and, um, and he pointed out to me, he was just like, you know, listen, um, all the issues that you're talking about, uh, stressing out about problems, not knowing how to get around this issue, my own uh, brokenness and sin in my own my own life. He was like, you know, um, you know, what does it look like for gratitude to live in your life? Like, what is like? Are you like? Tell me, like, what does gratitude look like for you? Um, and I began to think. I began to think about this, where I have basically, like, in my own life, this practice in gratitude, where I just don't. Like I just, I'm more aware of like what's missing in the world or missing in life or what's going wrong rather than being grateful for the things that are going well. Being thankful for what God is doing. And he drew my attention to Psalm 103. You know, remember, rem, uh, remember the Lord's benefits. 
Remember the good things that God has done for you. Remember how he saved you. Remember how he has been kind to you, how he's given you breath today, how he's given you life. And it began to stir this conversation for me and Michelle, like how can we, how can we begin to, to cultivate gratitude or thankfulness in our lives? I, I think this is an extension of the first commandment, to have no other gods before you. If you have the, the true and living God before you, you're going to, I want to be thankful to him. Like, what does it look like to cultivate thankfulness to him? I, it, one of the things that we just kind of starting to kick around is like answering this question, like uh, at dinner or once, once a day, uh, how have you seen the goodness of God today? You know, what if you spend like 10 minutes tomorrow, just sat down, you know, uh, for 10 minutes and just thought, how have I seen the goodness of God this last week? What well, you're going to begin to do answer that question, you're going to have to look at, okay, who does God say he is? Well, he's merciful and kind. He provides. He's gracious. He's good. Okay, in the last week, how have I, how have I experienced mercy? Right? And I'm not talking about like mercy like, thankfully, the cop didn't pull me over, you know, even though like I, I should have been pulled over. I'm talking about like mercy like, wow, like somebody was like legitimately kind to me this last week where like I was just a total jerk. <laughs> like I was a I was a jerk to my my you know, this past week on Monday, my day off. I was a total jerk to my family. And uh Michelle is still married to me. It's the mercy of God. Um she actually like tried to help me. My kids were nice to me. <laughs> you know, they, were, they understood for whatever reason, Daddy's in a bad mood and we're just gonna be nice to Daddy. Like not just kind of like work around Daddy, but like help Daddy. Like, that was a mercy of God that I did not deserve. How, how have you seen the goodness of God lately? I think asking the question, what are you thankful for? Have you seen the goodness of God lately? Draws us into what does it mean to obey this first commandment, right? You should have no other gods before me. Well, if we have the true God before us, we're going to be thankful. You guys tracking? The heart redeemed by grace lives in worship of the God of grace. So we're going to transition from the first commandment to the second commandment. So... First commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment. We're going to be looking at what it means to trust God. So, verse 4. You shall, have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who have loved, who love me and keep my commandments. So, it's just one of those Stone Age commands, right? Because here we are basically saying, no idolatry. What is up with that, right? So, like, here's this Old, this old Testament command, no idolatry. As far as we're aware today, we have no idolatry running rampant. It's just like one of those old commandments that really just needs to kind of be, like, tucked away and forgotten about because we don't do idolatry today. Well, here's, let me just kind of comment a little bit about what that would have meant for the original audience, right? When they, when they heard this, it would have said, okay, no carved image, no images about God or depicting God. And for them, the way images worked in pagan worship, the, the image itself would typically be like deformed in some way. Like, you know, you have like the God of power or might, like he's got like these like ripped arms or like this like super like scary head or whatever, like it's all the the reason they would have these deformities was to highlight the power that they were trying to invoke from the god, right? So you want the god of might, so he's got like a big right arm like mine, right? Huge bicep in the in the idol, and they're worshiping this god. that has got like this huge bicep. They're like, that's the that that's the power I'm I'm praying for right there. The god bicep. I'll stop doing the bicep thing, but. <laughs> You get what I'm saying? The the idol was like deformed to highlight the power that they were trying to get. So in some ways, what they were trying to do when God was saying, look, don't have idols. He's saying, look, I'm incomprehensible. You You can't confine me to some sort of like little definition, right? I'm not just the God of might, right? He's a shepherd. He's infinite. He's, he knows everything. So how can you begin to pull the God who's infinite and omniscient and all-knowing into a little carved image, right? So he's incomprehensible. Second thing, right? Uh, God, it diminishes his majesty, right? Like, so we're going to tell God, God, you are infinite and glorious and good and beyond imagination. Um, But we think you're kind of like 
this little doll. Just like totally like, that'd be t- totally stupid. You know? <laughs> it just it diminishes God's majesty. So the third thing it does is um, it forsakes what God has said about his relationship with us. So the idol, the way idols work is we're trying to bring into reality the things that we hope are true. Like we want, for example, the, the, the God of power idea. God, God, I need power, so I'm going to make this idol and I'm going to pray to you. But, but what God said, remember, God promised himself to them already. Right? He's the one that came out and saved them with his own strength. He's promised them in this context of grace to bring them near to himself. Right? He, he's already made this promise of this relationship with them. And, uh, and then there, he's saying, don't make idols because I'm already like, I've already made this relationship with you. Like, you don't need an idol. I've made myself available. Idols represent another path to God. They represent another path to power or provision. Um, there are ways that we seek to find the things that we need in life apart from God. Does that make sense? Martin Luther has this great little quote. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. Which begins to make me think that idolatry is not such an old, dusty thing. Because we cling to things that aren't God all the time. I mean, we live in a culture that's obsessed with um, money, sex, and power. I mean... I don't have to turn the TV on for five minutes and see two commercials to see that, oh, we are, we are com- uh, a culture that is committed to money, sex, and power one way or the other, right? That's, that's what we love, right? We, we idolize, right? It could be silly things like my life depends on um, what the latest celebrity thing is going on, right? Oh, my gosh, they broke up. <laughs> like, I can't live. Or it could be, um, it could be uh, a bit more serious, right? My political party didn't win. I'm going to be depressed for the next few months, which happened to me in college. <laughs> it doesn't happen to me now because I don't care. But um, it happened to me, you know. But whatever our emotional state is attached to what happens to this thing. We see this all the time. We see this, uh, this isn't in the slides, but Psalm 115. We see this picture of what... Um, idolatry looks like in our lives. Let me pull it up real quick. Psalm 115 reads like this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They are mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. They who make them become like them. Mm. So do all who trust in them. So see what looks on later on as we're talking about, here's these idols that we become like, that we trust in, which is why the second commandment, that's why we think it's aiming at our trust in who God is. Here's a question to help us understand, are we idolatry? Like, are we, are we idolizing? Or what's the idols in our lives? Answer this question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but just for your own reflection of how we apply this passage if I only had blank, then I would be blank. If I only had enough money, then I would be happy. If I only had a job, then I would be happy. If I only had a spouse, then I would be happy. If I only had my own house, then I would be protected. You begin, see how that, that question, if I only had fill in the blank, then I would be, that's what this commandment is getting after. It's our heart, really. What do we trust in? Are we trusting in God? If I only had Jesus, then I would be happy. That's a complete sentence. And that's a sentence that gives us hope. But you fill in the blank with anything else and it's going to drag you down to death. If I only had Enough money, the money will waste away, and my soul will forever shrink in hell. That's how that sentence ends. But if I only had Jesus, whatever troubles I face, 
then I'll be happy with Jesus alone. So let's fill in the, for example, if I only had control, then I would be happy. Let's pull that, let's pull that one out there. If I only had control, right? So here's how we play that one out. If I only had control, well, so I want control. Control becomes my idol. I want control. I want to have control in my life. I want things to be nice and clean and orderly. You guys who know me, you know, I like Ikea straight lines. (laughs) If I only had control, well, when I don't have control, then I get angry. Because people around me, it's their fault that I don't have control. So I'm going to get angry at my family. I'm going to angry at my friends. I'm going to angry at my kids because they are not serving my idol. They are not making my idol happen. They are getting in the way of my control becoming a reality. Or I go to bed at night because I, I don't have control and I fall asleep anxious because I can't. I, I don't have control. Or I, or I, I start or, ordering my life and I start, you know, putting hope in all my little practices to get control. And, you know, I put my tie on exactly straight and I do my job exactly right and I obey the rules exactly right. And so now I'm starting to get control and now I get what I am deserved and I do not live a life that is even touched by grace. Because grace is not getting what you deserve, but it's getting more than you could ever hope for. When you're trusting in your idol, for, so for example, our control that becomes the ruling part of our lives. Going after our trust. What are we trusting in? Which I think, you know, when we begin to kind of put idols in that category, I think that's why, for example, in the New Testament, you'll get comments about idolatry in kind of like what seem like weird places. I don't know if you ever read the book of 1 John. The end of 1 John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And it's like literally like the last line on this really great letter. <laughs> like this, the whole letter of the book of 1 John is saying, love the Lord, love him and know him and, and walk in his commandments, right? Obey him and, and treasure him and be a people like him. And little children, keep yourselves from idols. <laughs> it's like this like totally bizarre ending to this letter. But when you have this understanding of the second commandment, that idolatry is going after your heart's trust. What are you trusting in? When you tell somebody to love the Lord and to keep themselves from idols, it begins to make more sense now. Oh, this idolatry of my culture, my, my desires, and it's not just you know Venus on the, the mantle or Buddha on the mantle. We're not talking about that sort of Id- idols come out of the heart. But God who has saved us. Remember, this is all in the context of verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has saved us to a life of free, unending, unceasing joy and delight in him, in his provision. Right? He is the God who has up to this point in the story provided everything that they needed. In your life today, Right? we are all here because God has provided every ounce of air and water, and food that you have needed. The only reason you're here is because God has mercifully provided for you, and cared for you, and treasured your life to preserve you. God has provided you with a family, or uh, a house. He has provided you with a car. He's provided you with the mercy to actually be able to to think the thought, I'm going to go and be with God's people today. Right? <laughs> to be with God's people is no trivial thing. Be with people who love Jesus and give you Jesus. That is a, that is a very rare grace. And God is, we're not the only people who do that, right? Just so we're clear. There's plenty of churches in Manchester to do that. But God is graciously providing for you today. And at the second commandment, what it's getting after, do you respond and trust him? God, the difficulty that I can't seem to get around the coming week, that I, it's just kind of bearing down upon me, that I can't see around, that I don't know the answers to, I don't know what the diagnosis is going to be, I don't know if I'm going to get the job, I don't know if the money's going to come in. God, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I can't get around it. Do you trust him? Are you going to trust this God who has provided for you and cared for you and trust in him in a complete submission? Right, this is out of the house of slavery. Right, he doesn't call you to be a slave and like servile, but he calls you to be dependent upon him. Are you going to trust him? I think we can trust this God, this God who says to us, "You are mine." 
So let's pick up with the third commandment. Are you guys tracking? Is this cool? All right. Third commandment. Again, a short one, sweet and to the point. It's going to be lit to live in God. The heart redeemed by God, the, what it means to obey this commandment is to live in God. So verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Wow, okay, so are we like talking about like some legal code here? Here we are talking about trusting God and knowing God and delighting in him, and now we're getting to all this like not taking the Lord's name in vain, and what does that mean? Are we, talk, are we signing a contract? Here's what that would have meant in the original time, right? Original time would have said you would have used, um, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but um, my name would get you very little. But if you're trying to invoke somebody's name, like, oh, well, the mayor is my friend, that might get you someplace, right? So they would use names kind of like as like magic, right? So I would like, the Lord, you know, speak this into my life or whatever, right? So trying to use the Lord's name in magic ways or something like that. Um, or uh, another way that they would have uh, been seeing this is, um, thus says the Lord and speak on God's behalf when that's not true about who God is or what he's like or what he says. Um, or to give like a false representation of God, right? This is what God's like, right? Um, God wants you to give me a seed gift of $10 and I promise that I'll give you $1,000. That misrepresents God. And that's breaking the third commandment um, at the very least, not to mention other things. But what this is, is aiming at is a life that reflects who God is, right? When you take the name of God upon you, right? So like... Uh, if you were to say, if you were to, in 20 years, meet one of my children, having not seen us in the last 20 years, oh, you were young. Oh, well, I know you hold strong opinions, <laughs> right? To be like somebody, like to be a family identity is to be kind of like to bear the family resemblance, right? You're, oh, you're, you're like that because you, you're, you have that name. This is what this means, right? You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, which means when you say, I belong to the risen Christ, when I, I belong to Jesus, what that means is a life living in Jesus. You're going to reflect who God is and how you live and talk. And it goes after the words because our words come out of who we are in our heart. Right? So Jesus says in Matthew 12, um, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every clearest word they speak because, in that context, he is saying, out of the heart comes all of our words. Our words reflect something about what we believe about God. They reflect the inner person of who we are. Right? Our words uh, uh, are a testimony of our inner life. So when we say in verse 7, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the question again goes after the heart. Does your heart treasure, does it live in the goodness of who God is, a delight in the grace that God has given us? God is claiming the whole person to live in the grace of the fullness of God. He is claiming the whole person, you, all that you are. In this third commandment, he is saying, live in who I am and reflect it accurately. Like live in a way that it says, I know a God of grace. I know a God who gives grace to people like me who are total idiots, <laughs> right? If you're in here tonight, uh, here, here's something that's true. We are all in the ER of the world, right? We all live in absolute need, a desperate need of God's grace. Do we reflect that as who we are? Our words, so to turn this commandment over, do our words reflect we need grace and that we want to give it? Ephesians 5 or 4, Paul says this, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. I think he's reflecting on this commandment. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Words, words that give grace to other people are words that reflect that we know a God of grace. When we give grace with our words, right? When we respond kindly when someone's been attacking us with their words, um, it shows that we have understood that we've attacked God with our own hearts, right? 
we're, we were talking about earlier, being thankless, right? Attacking the glory of God and claiming uh, our sufficiency for ourselves. But God's been gracious to us. He hasn't destroyed us. He's provided for us. I know a God who provides for me when I don't ask for it or want it. And here you are saying something to me that's not exactly the nicest thing. And I'm going to be gracious in my response to you. Um, I think we could probably all, if we were to sit down and talk about this after over dinner, we could all think of a number of ways in our families or in our home life or at work where we have maybe not been so gracious in our words. But the command is to give us the grace to see, oh, no, 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 we, we have received the grace of God and we live in this grace. And so when we take his name upon us, we should be asking ourselves, for example, do our words give grace? Do they give grace to the people around us? Do we, do we build each other up with our words? Right? Do you build each other up? Are we treasuring the goodness of God as we worship him in our hearts? To be kind to other people. A friend of mine, uh, E. McConnell. Um, e. McConnell, just so you know, E. McConnell is, for our family of churches, he oversees all of church planning for Sovereign Grace. He's a very good friend of mine. He's actually going to be here in June. He's going to be coming, so... Ian's a great guy. He'll be here in June. But he made this recent tweet. I, took a, I was very proud of myself. I took a screenshot of the picture of the tweet. In these days, I'm convinced that one of the best ways for followers of Jesus to be countercultural is to be kind and to be kind to everyone. When we take the name of God upon ourselves, do we use our words to be kind to people around us? Because God's been kind to us. Are we kind to the people around us? Are we are we ridiculously kind, right? Like not just kind of like politely kind, but kind of like over the top ridiculous kind. That might be one of the most incredible ways that as we live out these 10 commandments in our lives, with our neighbors, with our city, that draws people attention more importantly to Jesus. Because Jesus has been kind to us. And when we are, when we are ridiculously kind to the people around us, it draws them to the life of God and Jesus, to the grace of God and the gospel. Oh, oh, this is uncommon for somebody to be so kind. This is so uncommon. As God begins to write these commandments in our hearts, that we would be more kind, that we would live in God, I pray that we would be more gracious to the people around us with our words, with our lives. So let's move on to the fourth commandment. Is this cool? Moving on to the fourth commandment, we're going to ask again, what, is, what does God graciously command to us if our life is to live in worship to the God of grace? Fourth, fourth commandment here, we're just going to call it rest in God. And this is about the Sabbath. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but here's what the commandment says. Remember the, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So here we have this commandment to rest. To rest in God. That's what the point of the commandment is. To treasure God, delight in him, but more importantly to rest in God. So there's a part of this, we could talk about this if you want at some point. A part of this commandment is connected to the temple, right? So they would have had their, their entire world would have been evolved, revolving around the temple. And so some of the commandments that you'll read in the Old Testament, especially the ones that are related to, you know, these are the consequences for breaking the Sabbath and stuff like that. Those are all connected to the temple, which ultimately in Jesus, those rules are uh, done away with. But there is a principle here. We were looking at this a few weeks ago. There's a principle and the way God designed the world. We work hard for six days, right? So work is good. Sorry to tell you. <laughs> work is good. But seventh day we're resting because we are working forward. We are looking forward to a world that will rest in the presence of God. When God comes and renews and restores everything the way it should be, we'll rest finally and we'll rest completely in his presence. Right now, we rest with God because he has made peace with us in Jesus, 
right? We rest, we don't, we have to work to justify ourselves. We don't have to work to make ourselves happy with God. Remember, we were looking at these commandments. We don't have to work to get God to, to like us or to be happy with us. No, in Jesus, God said, I'm happy with you and I forgive you. So we have just Hebrews, not Hebrews chapter four, chapter four in Hebrews, um, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So there remains a Sabbath rest for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So see what's going on here, right? There's, a, there's a, like a both and, right? Yes, Sabbath is done away with because there's a part of these Old Testament commands that they no longer bind us because Jesus has brought the satisfaction that we need, right? That's a, Matt is called a worship. That's what he's talking about, the... the, the uh, the law no longer has a binding hold on us. But there's principles, specifically in the Ten Commandments, that flourish in our souls now as God writes them on our hearts. Yes, rest is a reminder that you are at peace with God. What does it say to a world around us that is incessantly focused on working and tweeting and news flashing and constantly barraging us with information? That for one day of our week, we say, God, we're going to rest, and you're enough, and you're going to be enough. I think it sets a pace for our lives. Again, I, I don't have any copies of it tonight, but um, there's an article by Tim Keller, if you want it, on how to, how to understand this Sabbath stuff. Really helpful. I'd love to get it in your hands if you don't have it. But with all these things in mind, right? So we've been talking about what does it mean to delight in God? What is it? What does it mean to trust God? What does it mean to live in God? What does it mean to rest in God? These are the, the first four of the Ten Commandments. And we could be getting to the end of this, and, and the impression I do not want us to leave with is, and you guys are great, and we're great, and we're going to be great. <laughs> because the reality is, we have all broken these commandments. We don't, as we're talking through them, we're opening them up, all of us are going to be feeling the weight of them upon us. So I want to end with, the first four, cha- first four verses of Romans chapter 8, because there are gr- there, this is God's grace for us, right? The, part of the reason the law was given is to show us who God is. We've been seeing that. Part of the reason it was given was to convict us of we aren't like the way we should be, right? <laughs> but I think the, another reason the law was given was so that we could thrive in who God is in the gospel. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This should be a a verse that we have tattooed inside our eyelids. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Right? This is what he, talking about us. We can't obey these first four commandments that we're looking at. We can't do it. In our natural state, apart from Jesus, we can't do any of this. And even in Jesus, we do it feebly, half-heartedly. Remember, it starts out, there's no condemnation. And then in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So he sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. This is the cross, where Jesus goes up on the cross and dies in our place for all the ways that we have failed to keep these commandments, to live in the way that God has designed us to flourish, right? The, the purpose of these commandments isn't to, because God's like a, a rule freak. God's telling us in these commandments, this is what it means to thrive and to, and to flourish as a human. This is what it means to flourish in the way I designed you. But we failed to do it. Apart from God, we can't do that. And so all the ways we've failed to flourish and to obey God and to delight in him and to worship him, Jesus walks up to the cross by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. All the ways you are feeling the, the, the weight of, I haven't done this, I can't do it. Jesus died in your place to free you from that judgment. 
He died in our place so that the Ten Commandments, now as we look at them, are no longer a judgment upon us, but they're an invitation to grace, to grow in knowing God, to walk with God, but they are not a judgment upon us. He died in our place. He condemned our sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, in order that we could begin to walk in true obedience, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As we seek to obey these commands, we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in dependence upon the grace of God. That's why we started out by looking at Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Right? The Ten Commandments starts out this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It starts with grace. Your obedience your freedom from the ways you haven't obeyed these, it starts with God's kindness to us. And it starts with God's kindness to us, most importantly, in Jesus. There is only grace to be had as we look at these. There is only grace to be enjoyed as we look to to apply these. There is only grace to be enjoyed in tomorrow and the next day and the next day as we seek to obey these commandments. It's not because we're trying to prove ourselves to God, but because God in his grace has smiled upon us and made us a part of his family and blessed us in Jesus so that we can look at these and say, God, this is a great invitation to more grace, to see you, to worship you. So as we're looking at these, we're beginning to see that the heart redeemed by grace lives in worship of the God of grace. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these commandments, God, I I am so jealous for us to hear your invitation to more grace, to know you, and to see your character and who you are in these commandments, not threatening, but Lord, as flourishing in your presence. God, I pray that our souls would be satisfied with Jesus, that we would delight in you and rest in you and trust you and live in you because we worship you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.